It is Thursday, and according to the itinerary, Thursday is the day we have ourselves a topical discussion. And a suggestion had come in regarding a topical discussion in uh, regards to unbelievers and marriage. Unbelievers and marriage. And this came about because I had uh, created a poll question in a Facebook group. A poll question in a Facebook group. And the poll question was along the lines of marriage regarding unbelievers. Does God recognize and identify a marriage union between two unbelievers? Let's say they are, you know, whatever. Pagan, heathen, atheist, perhaps Hindu, Buddhist, Islamist. Outside the fold of Christendom is the idea. Non-believers. Does God recognize that marriage? Is God still the one whose law binds those two individuals together? Does God, from his uh, uh, presence and power, his authority, his law, still bind that unity? That union, sorry, between uh, male and female, husband and wife, who might be unbelievers? Atheists, perhaps. Well, that's a good question, right? Something we need to know. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's 8 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time. Early bird podcast sessions. Stefan Maya here with you. AddedSouls.com is the website. Please get involved. Please consider supporting. You can sign up to AddedSouls.Locals.com. That uh, option is in the show notes there. You can sign up on uh, over there in my community for free. You can, from there on, choose to support, and no amount is too small, no amount is too big. And it helps the Added Souls ministry a great deal with the gospel and the mission fields. AddedSouls.Locals.com There's also the PayPal option, email address, AddedSouls at gmail.com. You can send me an email if you'd like to have a conversation, set up perhaps a video chat or a phone call, or perhaps you need a hard address to mail something. All available there for you. Reports, updates, exclusive content over at addedsouls.locals.com. So here we are. Please consider to subscribe to this channel here, Added Souls on Rumble. Like, follow, share, comment, all that kind of good stuff. Let's get into it. Our friends over at westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com is the website we're going to be reading this morning, reading through their studies, and of course I will insert my studies throughout the decade plus and we will have ourselves a conversation regarding unbelievers and marriage. Unbelievers and marriage. And please, due diligence, this website, westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com. I am not well-versed in this website or this congregation. I simply saw the article, and the article uh, was uh, available. And so we're going to read through it and have ourselves a discussion with that. I've not seen anything from them thus far that would have me question their uh, doctrinal positions, uh, they seem to be in line with the Bible. But again, you have to do your own legwork, your own homework when it comes to these things. There are ministries that I am 100% sure of because I'm friends with them, but I'm not, uh, uh, or I've had a relationship, if you will, with them for, for many years. But with westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com, I am not entirely certain of all the facets of their beliefs. I would like to think they are in line with the Bible on everything, but sometimes there are discrepancies. I don't know. You'll have to look at that. Anyways, for this here episode, this session, 
The West Palm Beach Church of Christ.com has an article titled, Are Unbelievers Under Christ's Marriage Laws? And that's a very good question, and it's a very good article. And today, you and I are going to read through it. And if we do find something that is wrong scripturally, we'll address it. If not, we'll go with the flow and allow the scriptures, of course, to be revealed in study, and we will answer the question if God most certainly recognizes marriage between two unbelievers, because it is growing in popularity in common tongue among the churches of Christ in a great many locations, local congregations autonomously separated with individual accountabilities, that some have adapted the idea that the Bible teaches that marriage is solely to be bound upon two Christians, and that uh, anything else outside of that realm of Christianity is simply not recognized by God. It's void. God never authorized any other marriage that would not be within the realm of two Christians. And that's growing. And I can see why. I can see why that would be growing. I can see the temptation of wanting the Bible to say that. I do. In a world growing in divorce, where individuals come to Christ with <laughs> third, fourth marriage certificates, uh, it would be easier on the minister to just say, hey, don't worry about how many times you've been married yet thus far. Uh, if you just go down in the water and come out, all those marriages will be, you know, don't count. Everything's fine. And we'll just start from here. <clears throat> I can see how that's tempting. If that's true, if that's real, if that's actually what the Bible teaches, then we need to practice that. However, if that's not what the Bible is teaching, then are we going to choose what the world wants us to teach? Or are we going to choose what the Bible actually teaches? Again, to each his own independent accountability before God. The Bible is quite clear on right and wrong when it comes to doctrinal matters of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So we're going to read the article. I'm going to pull it up here on the screen. Before doing that, just want to make sure we are live and rolling on our Rumble channel. And we are. Good stuff. Okay. Are unbelievers under Christ marriage laws? There's the article. I put my video feed at the bottom left as usual. There we go. Sliding right. Sliding in. And uh, yeah, this is from the West Palm Beach Church of Christ.com, titled, Are Unbelievers Under Christ's Marriage Laws? Introduction. There are many positions concerning God's legislation on divorce and remarriage. One of the popular positions today that continues to gain more followers is that the law of Christ on marriage, given in Matthew 19.9, only applies to two Christians. The position further states that the law of Christ concerning marriage does not apply to mixed marriages, parentheses, a believer who marries an unbeliever, nor does the law apply between two non-Christians, which is, of course, friends, the greater bulk of the world. The fancy statement of this position is that non-Christians are not amenable or responsible to the law of Christ. Since Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 do not apply to non-Christians, the position contends that an unbeliever can divorce and remarry repeatedly without committing adultery. Further, when the unbeliever comes to Christ, it is at that time that the unbeliever, who is now a believer, becomes amenable to Christ's marriage laws and therefore can keep their current spouse, regardless of of past marriages or circumstances, once they are Christian. From then point on, 
they are not allowed to divorce and remarry except for sexual immorality, which would be fornication, porneia, most specifically according to the language of the scriptures, rightly handled and rightly translated, the Greek word porneia, fornication. This position has been made popular by E.C. Fuchia, James Bales, and Homer Haley. So that's the position. You are bound once you are born again to the laws of marriage, but not before. So it doesn't matter how many times you've been married and divorced prior to your baptism into Christ. It's all washed away. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count anyways. So there's not a sin to be washed away, the argument would say, in me just reasoning with the conclusion of it all. If God doesn't recognize marriage outside Christianity, then... There's no adultery being seen by God, therefore there's no sin to be washed away in that category. Right? I mean, I don't know, I'm just reasoning with the idea and, and having a logical conclusion to the matter. If you come to me and say, those marriages did not count because God did not recognize those marriages, then okay, they are not guilty of adultery. They need not go down in the water for adultery. That's not one of the sins they will be cleansed of, if you will. Now, they might be cleansed of all the other sins they may have committed, you know, maybe lying, thieving, whatever else is involved, but certainly not adultery because God does not recognize that sin outside the covenant of... I'm just reasoning with the position here. Anyways, a bit of an excursion for our thoughts. <clears throat> Back to the text in the article. Allow me a moment to explain the logic behind this position. In the days of the Old Testament, we see in the scriptures that there were two laws given. The obvious law that we know of is the law of Moses. The law of Moses was only given to the Jews, Deuteronomy 5, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Gentiles were also under law, but not under the law of Moses. We know that there was law to the Gentiles because without law there is no sin, Romans 5, 13. It's clear from Romans 1 that they had transgressed law because they are condemned in sin by Paul, showing their need for a savior from their sins. This law has been called various things throughout time. Some have called this law to the Gentiles the, quote, Adamic law, or Adam, the Adam law, right? Adamic, uh, uh, Adamic law. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I'm a French guy speaking English words. <laughs> Anyways, let's read that again. Some have called this law to the Gentiles the Adam law, Romans chapter 5, verse 14. From Romans chapter 8, verse 2, this law to the Gentiles has also been called, quote, the law of sin and death. In most cases, this law to the Gentiles has been called, quote, universal moral law, end quote. Up to this point, there is no reason for argument, for we must accept that Gentiles are under law. Parentheses, whatever name one chooses to call it. And the Jews were under the law of Moses. Correct? Of course. The Gentiles, the heathens, we had law prior to Christ. If we look at it, and here's just a bit of my own thoughts and illustration, apart from the article, though I think it will contribute to the article, if you will. Um, let's just look at earthly illustrations. Jesus would do that often, wouldn't he? He'd, he'd, he'd point us to an earthly illustration or parable that would point to a spiritual truth and reality. Look at our secular law 
or if you will, our sociopolitical laws and the politicians and the policies therein and how our government enforces these policies and what takes place there and that. And you have yourself two categories of citizenry. You have those who are law-abiding citizens. They will submit to the governing laws and its policies and obey the governing laws and its policies. And you have another percentage of the citizenry who are considered lawless. That is, of course, the department I found myself in. In my past life, we were not bound to the laws of our governing authorities. We had our own laws among our own selves. You would see that, of course, in the organizations we were found in. Elements of the motorcycle world, if you will. Let's just leave it at that. And also of the organized crime realm. We had our own law. Yet still, if you, like, if you walked into our courts, into our world, if you will, from that perspective, you had law to follow. And you better be quick and wise to that law or you're going to get yourself hurt double time. Well... If you would ask us, hey, don't you guys obey the law of the government? No, we don't abide by the law of the government. We are not in your world. Yet, respectively, respectively, looking at the big picture, are we not citizens of a country bound to be submissive to the governing laws therein? Yeah, we are. And we certainly do stop at the stop signs so as to not get caught by the cops for an unwanted or unnecessary ticket. We do stop at the red lights. But beyond that, it doesn't go too far. We make our own laws regarding murder. We make our own laws regarding what is legal or illegal, what is moral or immoral. And in the realm of crime, certain things are set in stone. You don't hurt women and children. And you do not hurt civilians. Why? Because we care. Well, there is a brotherhood, and there is a camaraderie, and there is an understanding. Now, are there maniacs in that world that do not care about women and children and will murder anyone at any time, anywhere? Yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't uh, change the law that is generally known among the heathen. In our world, there was, there was law. Yet still, though we would not submit to the laws of the governing land, we were still subjects to the law of the governing land. I was not going to be able to be caught in murder of another gangster, let's say, who magically appeared somehow, somewheres. I get caught, there's evidence, witnesses, whatever the case. I'm not going to be able to stand before the court and say, hey, listen, that's for you guys. That's for your laws. That don't, apl that don't apply to me. That don't confront me. That ain't nothing to do with me. Leave me alone. I'm going home now. Do you think that would work? Do you think that would apply? Do you think that would be possible? Well, of course not. <laughs> the judge is going to say, I don't care if you think these laws apply to you or not. You're guilty of murder. And you're going to jail 25 with an L. And that's the end of it. Okay, so Gentiles, unbelievers, live according to their own laws. The heathens have their own laws. Nebuchadnezzar had his own laws. Yet still, was he not subject in the grand reality of his existence to the law of God? To God's existence as a living, breathing God? Yeah. If not, why the effort? Why the account? Why the book of Daniel? Do you see where I'm going with this? I had to go through this path myself, you know. 
I had to go through this path myself and so having to do my own studies and I'm just inserting my mind and illustration and reasoning with the article we're going through. Do you understand that? So here we have ourselves a citizenry, okay? In, in, let's say in America, you have people who are law-abiding and you have people who are not. Are the ones who are not somehow exempt from the law that those who are obey? You would say no. It doesn't matter if you believe in the law or not. It doesn't matter if you say those laws apply to me or not. They do if you're a citizen of this country. It doesn't matter. What if you're in a different country that has completely different laws, that doesn't believe in the God of the Bible? Does it matter? Are we not humankind? Are we not citizens of humanity, ultimately? Though separated by borders and nations and countries that we have created? Does that matter, truly? Is murder only wrong in a country that says murder is wrong? If we go to a country where murder is legal, and by the way, just so you know, murder is legal in Canada and in America. It is. You can legally murder a human being in the womb of a mother or the carrier, more accurately to the cause. Does that matter? Is there a higher power, a higher court that will be in session one day that will judge those who murdered legally, quote-unquote legally? You see, we have to have these conversations regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because if marriage does not apply to the unbeliever, then we open up a can of worms on what does and what doesn't anymore. Does murder apply to me, really? Maybe, it only, maybe the law that condemns murder as a sin only applies to me once I am born again into Christ. From there on, I should not murder. But all the murders I've done prior doesn't matter because it's legal, according to the state, according to the country, according to the world. See, where, see what's going on? And maybe I'm way off. Maybe you think me a fool. Okay, well, reason with me. You explain it to me. Back to the, back to the article here. Bit of an excursion again of my thoughts and my studies. Okay. So we continue with the next phrase here. The question comes down to this. When Christ came and brought his new covenant, did Christ's covenant remove both the law of Moses and the law of sin and death, or only the law of Moses? If Christ's law only removed the law of Moses, then the, universe, then the universal moral law is still in place against those who are unbelievers. If Christ removed both laws, then both believer and unbelievers are amenable to the law of Christ, and therefore must obey Christ's marriage laws. This is the issue presented before us. And just from my thought, again, in my own personal studies, as I think of a Bible verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and doing what? The Bible says, the Bible says, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's going everywhere, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So everything taking place there, <clears throat> and that even goes, <clears throat> that even goes to Matthew chapter twenty-eight. Uh, let me see now. I don't want to misplace this. Matthew. Okay, so Matthew chapter four, verse twenty-three. If you're taking notes there, and uh, Matthew chapter 
28. I just want to make sure I got it. Yeah, okay. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All, everything. Everything. For those going out with this here commission. Everything Jesus taught is binding. What is he doing? Well, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has a king. The kingdom has citizens. There's law. Just because you don't find yourself in the kingdom doesn't mean the law of the kingdom does not apply to you. You may be roaming in the U.S. as an American saying, I am an outlaw. I do not abide by the laws of the land, of the kingdom. doesn't matter. If the king finds you guilty of the laws and the the decrees and the uh, uh, the policies of the kingdom enforced find you guilty, you're going to jail, whether you believe in it or not. Well, that shouldn't be, right? According to the reasoning of some of our brethren, maybe? Let's keep reading. As we go into this study, I want to be honest with you and tell you that I am not sure which scenario is correct. There are extremely good arguments on both sides as to whether unbelievers are under the law of Christ or not. But I do want to positively declare to you that the answer is not needed to know what law unbelievers are under concerning marriage. I have argued before that the laws of marriage have always been the same since Genesis chapter 2 and have not changed to this very day. I intend to prove this by showing that the unbeliever is under the same marriage law, whether under Christ's law or under the law of sin and death. This again is an article from westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com. You'll have to do your own studies as to if they are sound or unsound. I've found some of their articles to be very sound. I would, have, I would probably disagree with the last statement here that I read regarding unbelievers and believers and knowing which is right or which is wrong. I am firmly convinced on what is right and what is wrong regarding this here matter, this here branch of conversation, the doctrine regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Let's keep reading, though. Let's keep reading. Unbelievers are under the law of Christ, Christ's teaching on marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, 9, it's very clear, clearly uh, taught that uh, by Christ that there is only one lawful reason for a divorce and remarriage, and that is for the cause of fornication. It is specific, by the way. It is specific, and it is very well descriptive with the original language, porneia. It is the physical, literal act of fornication. Sexual intercourse. That's it. Not watching pornography, not any other activity. It is strictly the literal physical act of intercourse. That's the exception to the rule. Nothing else. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have separations for everything else, like porn addiction or uh, verbal or physical mental abuse and things like that. There's conversations to be had there, and I've had a great many, and I've studied all of these throughout the years, and I've shared a great many podcasts, sermon studies on this, articles, you name it. Doesn't mean I know everything, but I do know enough. And um, it's important we understand that because a great many will be found sadly on the wrong side of eternity before God because they did not do diligence study in this here department of doctrine. 
marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And they will say, well, I divorced my spouse because he or she was always watching pornography. Well, you can't do that. You can have a separation. There can be counseling. There can be a time in which both must be separated in order to heal or to go through counseling or to have a discipline of sorts to challenge or trigger the marriage back into a passionate unity, things like that. But that's the exception to the rule and there is no other. Paul would not contradict Jesus in Corinthians. He would, Contrary to a great many, again, Christians who try to contaminate and uh, compromise their faith by accepting what the world wants them to accept will say differently and cause contradiction in the scripture. But there is no contradiction. God the Father, God the Son, and Paul and, his, and the other apostles, they don't contradict each other on the law here uh, regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's important that we drill that in. You cannot legally, before God, divorce your spouse for any other reason but the, the uh, explicit, literal, physical act of sexual intercourse, fornication. Like, that's what the text says. So either you're going to say the Bible is wrong or the Bible is right, but you, I'd much, we much rather respect you if you just said, I don't want to believe the Bible. Okay, let's roll with that. But to try to say the Bible doesn't teach that is dishonest at best. And I've been through this with an honest, open mind in my studies, wanting to make sense of this here uh, uh, teaching in the scripture. Anyways, a bit of an excursion there again. There's a lot more that could be said about that. And if you want more information about that, I'm more than happy to send you information about that. All other acts of divorce and remarriage are condemned as adultery in the Bible. Therefore, if we can prove that unbelievers are under the law of, of Christ, then it is easy to show that unbelievers can only divorce and remarry for the cause of fornication. The following points are arguments presented to show that unbelievers are under the law of Christ. And let's uh, well, he'll, the article might deal with it. Again, this is an article from West Palm Beach, churchofchrist.com. And I am not certain if they are sound on everything, so please peruse their website with caution as you would with anything. Be independent, think for yourself, and make sure that what they are saying is from the Bible. So amenable, uh, amenable, or amenable to one part of the law is amenability to all the law. Let's read what they say. This is probably one of the strongest arguments in proving that unbelievers are under the law of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, and I quote, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, end quote. James argues the same point in James chapter 2, verse 10, quoting, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it, end quote. And before I keep reading, I am mindful again of Matthew 19, 9, and the information that Jesus uh, declares in Matthew 19, because, again, these various schools of thought during the day and age Jesus walked the earth, these religious leaders, they wanted to know which side Jesus was going to take. Is Jesus going to side with the Sadducees or with the Pharisees or with another uh, 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 sect of Jewish uh, uh, schooling and tradition? Which side is Jesus going to take? And of course, Jesus took none of their sides because none of them were created by God 
meaning none of their traditions and their and their uh, uh, organizations, if you will, were commanded by God or created by God. God didn't create a Pharisee is what I'm saying. God didn't create a Sadducee. Men created Pharisees. Men created Sadducees. Okay, so they're asking Jesus, which side are you going to take? Are you going to take the side of the Pharisee, which says you can't divorce for any reason whatsoever? Or are you going to take the side of the Sadducee, and the Sadducee says you can divorce for any reason whatsoever? You don't like your wife anymore? She burnt the toast? Divorce her. She's old now. Oh, well, get, get yourself a younger wife. It doesn't matter. You can divorce for any reason whatsoever. And trying, of course, to appeal to Moses and what Moses was doing and what Moses had done because they thought Moses to be their hero, obviously, and Jesus doesn't take any side. Jesus doesn't take the side of Moses. He doesn't take the side of the Pharisee, the Sadducee, or anyone else. Which side does Jesus take? He takes the side of his father from the very beginning, male, female, husband, wife. Let no man separate what God has put together, right? And in that, in that context, in chapter 19, that's why Jesus uses the word whoever. Whoever goes above and beyond the Jew. There is specific language, context, and grammar when it speaks of the Jews. But when, and there is also specific wording, grammar, and context when it speaks about both Jew and Gentile. When Jesus is speaking in Matthew 19, he's not saying, you Jews, whoever among you Jews. No, he's saying whoever, meaning it doesn't matter which skin color you have. It doesn't matter which language you speak. It doesn't matter which geographical location you were born and raised in, which religious background you come from. It doesn't matter if you are a human being with independent accountability, the intellectual capability of understanding these words, you are subject to the law. And his law is the one his father from the very beginning set forth. And when I speak of law, I'm not speaking in law of a, um, a bound command in which everyone must be married or you're damned to hell. The institution, the institution itself is divine. It's God-created law. The institution is perfect. Men mess it up, but the institution is perfect and it is applicable for all. It's law within its realm regarding fornication, adultery, and things that would be deviant and perverted to the to the marriage bed is binding. And the whoever is a powerful word in Matthew 19 because it means it, anyone, the Gentile and the Jew. Things to consider, guys. If we're being honest and we just want to follow Jesus, we have to be honest with these things. Now back to the article here at, at hand. We just quoted James chapter 2, verse 10. What can be understood by these passages is that if you are obligated to keep one law, then you are obligated to keep all the laws. Oh man, I, this is too, I need to have this one as well. Listen, some religious organizations, denominations today who fly under the banner of Christendom. Of course, Christendom created in their own image. Men create Christianity according to their own image, which is not the image in which the Bible reveals Christianity to be, by the way. Since men have created Christianity in their own image, with their own interpretation, you know, this whole diversity and coexistence, no one's wrong, the, the, the isms of our plight, you know, relativism, pluralism, emotionalism, what does that mean? It simply means this, there is no truth, no one can know the truth, so we have to make up our own truths. 
That's all the isms are about. Relativism, pluralism, emotionalism. There is no truth to be known. No one can know the truth. So therefore, we must create our own truth. Hence, we create our own image of Christianity and we just give it a name. And look at the denominations out there from A to Z. There's a new one popping up every other day with the image of men as its agenda. Okay? Because of that, you have religious organizations who claim Christianity who will bind various things from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is no longer the law we are subject to, by the way. If that is the case, then the cross of Christ is vain. It's useless. Jesus never had to come and die on that cross to alleviate us from the law of the Old Testament. That aside, that to be true, and that is scriptural. Book, chapter, verse can be quoted, by the way. But to the point in the expediency of our session, some individuals today will bind Old Testament law, but yet they will pick and choose which law. They will say, we must continue to meet on Saturday, for that is the Sabbath day. And they bind themselves today to a law that was specific and had an expiration date, by the way. It was specific for a people in a specific time and a specific context for the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. But yet they'll take and pluck that out of its context to bind it on us today, certain groups as the Seventh-day Adventists and many others. But yet why don't they still yet sacrifice animals? Oh, they have answers for that. But the truth is, if you seek to bind an Old Testament law upon us today in the stewardship we are commanded to endeavor within the messianic dispensation of time, then you must take all of it. We need to start sacrificing animals as well. And we need to go back throughout the days of Pentecost and other activities the Jews were commanded to observe. Why don't we do that? Because again, they pluck out of context, they pick and choose. It's the buffet of religious affairs. They create Christianity in their own image. And they do that with a host of a great many doctrines that are foreign to the scriptures. Okay, bit of an excursion. Back to the, the, article, the article here. Therefore, if unbelievers are accountable to this law given by Christ, they are also accountable for all the other laws given by Christ. Therefore, if baptism is to be obeyed by unbelievers, the marriage laws as well as the laws against murder, stealing, and drunkenness are also to be observed by unbelievers. Because if it isn't, then it's not really a sin. Do you see the logical conclusion to a position stating that God does not recognize adultery within an unbeliever? Well, okay then. If he doesn't recognize marriage between unbelievers, adultery is not identified, then nor can everything else. Thieving, gossip, murder, all of it. Unbelievers are obligated to keep the whole law of Christ. That's it. That's all. It doesn't matter if you are telling yourself that you are not under the law of your land, you are. Now, of course, we Christians know that the uh, primary law, the, the ultimate law and source of authority for us Christians is not an earthly government. It's 
God's government. It's God's politicians and policies. It's God as king. Jesus Christ is king of his kingdom. We are citizens of his kingdom first and foremost. And if the laws of the land through this world and their governing affairs is in line with Christian principles, then we follow along. But when they breach and deviate away from Christian principles and bind law that is hostile to Christian faith, then we obey Christian we obey Christ and not our earthly government. Another bit of an excursion there to that end, but let's stick with it to the topic at hand, unbelievers and marriage. Okay. Jesus applied his law to everyone, not to Christians. Furthering the power of this argument, let us turn our attention to Matthew 19.9. Was Jesus speaking to Christians when he gave these laws of marriage? Well, no. Jesus was speaking to Jews, of course, those under the old covenant, uh, old covenant, of course. Therefore, we cannot simply say that the laws of Jesus were only given to Christians because these laws were actually a clarification of Moses's law concerning marriage. But that it, but be that as it may, in Matthew 19:9, who does Jesus apply this law to? And of course, I think the article is going to go to what I was a bit quick to jump the gun with, uh, with regarding the word whoever. Let's see if, he, if, if they do this. Notice how the command begins, quote, whoever. Jesus brought in everyone under this law. If you are a whoever, then this law applies to you. Quote, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, fornication, and marries another commits adultery, close quote. And here's another important excursion. Translations that translate Porneia to sexual immorality are wrong. Well, okay, that's a bit heavy-handed. Let me explain it this way. Is fornication sexual immorality? Yes. But is can, can, can sexual immorality in this context with this word porneia be anything else but the explicit, literal, physical act of sexual intercourse? No. Fornication? No. So you can't say whoever divorces his wife except for porn, pornography, watching pornography, or except for, oh, my husband was lusting after a pretty young girl on the other side of the road who was wearing, you know, tight-fitting jeans or something. No, you can't know that. No, no, can't do that. Does that mean he's not in sin? Well, of course, he's still in sin for watching pornography. He can't go to heaven watching pornography. He can't go to heaven uh, staring at beautiful women on the sidewalks who nowadays, let's be honest, are mostly naked. He or she have a big problem with God if they do that. They have adulterous hearts. But just because you are thinking of murdering someone... The government's not going to come get you and say you're going to jail for life because you thought about murdering someone. You actually have to murder someone, be caught and be put in jail. Well, just because you've caught yourself in your mind lusting after another doesn't give you the right for divorce, but it certainly, it certainly facilitates your path to eternal destruction, eternal punishment if you don't repent, if you don't change. Whoever... Again, a bit of an excursion there. It needed to be pointed out. Whoever is anyone, believer and unbeliever. This is a law given to Christians, to Jews, to Gentiles, to all people. Whoever. Whoever divorces his wife, 
Except, here's the exception to the rule. Well, what's the exception to the rule? Porneia, the physical, literal act of sexual intercourse. And marries another? Commits adultery. That's all there is to it. That's it. People keep saying, what's your interpretation of marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Matthew 19.9. Yeah, 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 I know, but what's your... No, my... I don't have mine. It's what the Bible says. Now, of course, within the academic pursuits, we know that we are responsible to give interpretation. And the idea is you want to follow someone whose interpretation is in line with the scriptures, because ultimately you're following the scriptures and not someone's interpretation of the scriptures, but the scriptures itself. Okay, whatever. A bit of synonymous word scrambling there, but you get the point. Okay, therefore, many argue that not only the law of Moses, but also the law of sin and death were taken away at the cross, and the law of Christ is to rule all people. Since the law of Christ rules all people, then all people are under his marriage laws, and Matthew 19.9 applies to law, to all. Now the article takes us to a section called Law of Sin and Death. Universal moral law contains marriage laws. This again is an article from westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com and it is up to your own independence and free will to check them out. They may be doctrinally right in some categories. They may be doctrinally wrong in others. I do not know them very, to that end. But uh, yeah, you do, you do your own research on that. Okay, considering the alternative. However, let us consider the possibility that the law of sin and death is still in effect against those who are unbelievers. Homer Haley, for the first three quarters of his book, makes very persuasive arguments to show that the law of sin and death is still in effect to unbelievers. I'll let you spend your own time in studying whether the law of sin and death is still in effect. But allow me to show you a couple of passages which seem to suggest such. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, we, we read, quote, For the law of the spirit of life, uh, of the life... Uh, uh, I'm butchering this. Let me quote it again. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, end quote. This seems to teach that one is under the curse and condemnation of the law of sin and death. But when one becomes obedient to Christ, they are made free from that law and are now under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 3 of this passage continues that it is this law that condemns us, but it is the law of Christ that gives us life and frees us. Romans 5 also argues such a point. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we see that we are all under the same condemnation of law because we have all disobeyed the law of sin and death, just as Adam did. While not trying to necessarily prove this to be the truth, I want to use, uh, I want us to, to, to recognize that the option is very viable, logical and scriptural, and it is not an argument uh, from left field, if you will. If this be the case, the proponents of this position believe they have us on the matter of divorce and remarriage. If the law of sin and death is still in effect for the unbelievers, the proponents of this position show the necessity of realizing that unbelievers are not under the law of Christ concerning marriage. Instead, unbelievers are under the law of sin and death concerning marriage. Proponents further teach that there is no condemnation of adultery in the law of sin and death. The question we must ask ourselves is this. 
Does the law of sin and death, or universal moral law, contain laws concerning marriage? Well, I believe that the law of sin and death contains the same marriage laws, and I will spend the rest of this lesson, of, of this lesson proving this point. Laws condemning violating marriage covenant. There are many places in the scriptures where we learn about the Gentiles violating law. Since the Gentiles were violating law and they were not under the law of Moses, we must assume they violated the law of sin and death. If we know the violations of the law, then we can know what were, uh, what were commands contained in that body of law. If you move to this country, you kind of have to be well-versed in the laws we have. Now, we've since lost our laws. We're a, we've lost our identity. This is a fallen nation, and pretty much you can come in here and do what you want to do, but there are still boundaries. There are still some set rules that we apply. You need to learn them. You need to learn that there's a stop sign at the end of the street, and that means you need to stop your car. That kind of stuff. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 32, Paul describes the violations of the Gentiles. In verse 25, we see that idolatry was forbidden under universal moral law. In verses 26, 27, and 28, we learn that homosexuality was forbidden. Consider all of the other laws that were given by God to the Gentiles as revealed in verses 29 through verse 32. Again, why condemn the ancient Gentile world for things that apparently God would not recognize anyways or see fit to identify or authorize or, you know, it would make no sense. So the Gentiles were commanded to not covet, to be malicious, not envious, not murderers, not deceitful, not be backbiters, not be proud or violent, not be disobedient, and to be trusting, loving, forgiving, and merciful. Now, do these laws sound familiar to the law of Christ? I hope we see that these are the same laws. Further, Romans chapter 1, verse 29 identifies sexual immorality as a sin of the Gentiles. The word Greek work for sexual immorality is porneia, which means unlawful sexual relations. And in this here, of course, section... Regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage is fornication. Now, is sexual immorality within the realm of uh, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, and bestiality, and all of those LGBTQ plus practices? Yeah, of course. But we're speaking about what gives you the right, of course, to remarriage. And the only exception to the rule is pornea, fornication. All the others including pornea, will have you eternally punished if you do not repent. There's no way around that. They are all sins that if you high-handedly live in and practice, you will die condemned. But as far as the exception to the rule for remarriage, it is solely pornea, fornication. From this we can see that the law of sin and death or universal moral law, contained the same marriage laws because the same condemnation of adultery, fornication, is given. This point is more clearly seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Paul says that fornication, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, 
and so on, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice carefully verse 11, quoting, And such were some of you. How could the Gentiles of Corinth have previously been adulterers if there was no law against adultery given to them? Well, that's a very good question to ask. How could they be fornicators if there was no law in the universal moral law calling this a sin? Very good question. It is clear that these were laws against the Gentiles and therefore contained in universal moral law so that the Corinthians needed to be washed, sanctified, and justified. 1 Corinthians 6.11 The same laws for violating the marriage covenant were given to the Gentiles. From the beginning, marriage law has been given to all. And that's where I go every time I preach on this, I teach on this, I write upon this. We must go to the very beginning. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 19. From the very beginning, he says... This point is also the thrust of Jesus' words in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, what law does Jesus refer to as the marriage law to all men? Jesus does not teach the law of Moses so that it could be argued that this law was only to the Jews. Instead, Jesus goes to the marriage law given at the beginning in Genesis 2 and shows that Moses' law is the same as the law given in the beginning. Moses' law, Christ's law, and even the things taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 all fit together as the same law given by God in Genesis 2. This is one marriage covenant that has never changed. The laws of marriage were given in the very beginning and have not been altered or amended. Jesus teaches that marriage is from the beginning. Where Adam and Eve, Jews? No. The promise of the nation did not come until Abraham. Were Adam and Eve Christians? No, since Christ had not come yet, right? So in a very general sense, Adam and Eve were Gentiles. Adam and Eve stand before the law of Moses and before the law of Christ. Jesus teaches that the marriage law given to them is universal in nature and applies to everyone. Marriage is not a Jewish law or Christian law but divine law given to all mankind, regardless of the covenant relationship they are in. Hollywood can't change that, though they certainly attempt to try to do so. Hollywood ain't going to change this very truth from the scriptures, nor are contaminated and compromised brethren in the fold, whether they be elders or preachers, evangelists, deacons, it don't matter. You can't change this. God's law in Genesis 2, though not explicitly stated, had the same effects as the explicit teaching of Christ. When God said he made them male and female and the two became one flesh, he implicitly prohibited divorce, adultery, homosexuality, and polygamy. The law was set, male and female, husband and wife. If you want to qualify in order to obey entrance within the institution of marriage, you must be one male and one female. No, not two males. No, not two females. No, not one male or four females. None of that. God did not approve at any time of those things. God suffered long with them. He suffered long with them because of the wickedness of the world. But now we are called, all men are called to repentance. So saith the scriptures of the New Testament law. Okay. 
Jesus explicitly taught this in Matthew 19 as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. God's marriage law of Genesis 2 applies to all men in the covenant and outside the covenants of God. Here's another witnessed and recorded account I always go to, which is John the Baptist con condemning a Herod and Herodias based upon the law of sin and death. Herod had his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, which he was not lawful to have. And she hated John so much for it and was so bitter against him and so holding on to that grudge that she had his head cut off. Even at the, he, She was even offered half of Herod's kingdom. She didn't want that. She didn't want the money. She didn't want the influence. She didn't want the uh, anything else other than John's head on a platter. Why? Because John the Baptist would publicly shame them and condemn them for being in an adulterous relationship. Well, why would that matter? They were heathens. They were Romans. They were Gentiles and Greeks. Why would that matter if the law of Christ regarding marriage does not apply to them? Well, it's because it goes beyond and it goes prior to all of law that came afterwards. It's God from the very beginning. I would like us, now I continue to read the article, I would like us to make another consideration concerning what was contained in the law of sin and death, or the universal moral law. In Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we find that Herod had married Philip's wife, Herodias. John the Baptist preached against this to Herod, quote, It is not lawful for you, so a law from God for you, an unbeliever, to have your brother's wife. End quote. Herod was clearly a Gentile. In fact, the lineage of Herod's of the of the Herods came from Idumea, which were Edomites. Edomites, right? Edomites. Okay, right. Because again, Herod was not the name of the man. Herod was the office. That's why whichever one during that dynasty would be a Herod in that position of power or leadership. Anyways. Uh, with Herod being a Gentile, not being under the law of Moses, and Christ's law not being established yet since Christ had not died, what law was Herod under? That John would see it fit to rebuke him, shame him publicly into trying to get him to repent, right? Well, it seems clear by now that Herod was under the law of sin and death, or universal moral law. How could John say to Herod, that it was not lawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. Again, let's say, like, if I go back to my past life, we were lawless, meaning we did not adhere to the laws of the governing land. We had our own laws within our own realms in organized crime. But if a police officer were to come and say, hey, you're not allowed to, to murder, you're, you're a murderer, that's against the law. I would say, your laws don't matter to me, Mr. Police Officer. We don't care about your laws. What do you think would have happened there? How do you think that would have played out? I would be in jail. And they'd be like, I don't care if you think it applies to you or not. It does. Okay. The only answer is that the law Herod was under, the law of sin and death, contained marriage laws that prohibited the actions he took. Once we admit that there are marriage laws governing the Gentiles, it takes but a moment to realize that the marriage law they are under is the same as the marriage laws given by Christ that believers are under. Why couldn't Herod have Herodias as a wife? Herod could not have Herodias because Herodias was still the wife of Philip and was still bound to him. If you're honest, if you're not agenda-driven, 
or loyal to falsehood? This is very simple and clear. Very, very concise. Okay. The point that I hope we are all realizing is that simply because one is an unbeliever does not mean that one can divorce and remarry without committing adultery. To suggest that unbelievers are not under marriage laws or that unbelievers cannot commit adultery is to completely ignore the scriptures. The scriptures repeatedly condemn the Gentiles for adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and other sexual sins. Therefore, they are also under the marriage laws of God and have violated those laws. You cannot, and pay attention to an example I'm going to share with you, you cannot, you will stand condemned before God, so saith his word. If you take two unbelievers who have been married, divorced, and remarried three, four times, numerous times, for all sorts of reasons. You can't take those two unbelievers and put them underwater and have them come up out of the water and say, there you go, everything's cleared, everything's fine, you can remain together now. Because they're still in an active union that is adulterous. There has to be a dissolving of that. <laughs> and they will both necessarily now need to remain single, if you will, for the common use of the word. Single. Unmarried. Of course, there is room for discussion and there are different contexts and it must take a case-per-case -case scenario on all things. But yet still, the law here that is set is not changeable. It's never going to change from what God set forth from the very beginning. Let us consider the logical point as well. If the law, uh, uh, if the if the laws of marriage were not given to the Gentiles, right, are not contained in the law of sin and death, and do not apply to unbelievers, then unbelievers have no authority for marriage. They just don't. If unbelievers are not under God's marriage laws, then they have no authority for marriages and therefore sin when they do marry. To act without authority is sin, as John tells us that sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Lawlessness is to act where there is no law or authority. How do we know that unbelievers have the right to marriage? Well, they wouldn't. Now, there is also a section category of discussion regarding those who claim to be married as homosexuals. Two males, let's say. Well, God does not recognize that as a union whatsoever. What he sees and recognizes, and what the scriptures, of course, reveal, is that you have yourself two men practicing homosexual activities, which in its strict biological deviation and perversion is anal sexual intercourse between two men. That is homosexuality. It is not a marriage. The world can say that two women can get married, two men can get married, a man and a dog can get married, a man can marry a car if he wants to, an object, a material object. It doesn't matter what the world says along those lines. That's not marriage. They've never been married. They never will be married. You'll never have such a thing as a male married to another male. Although the secular and godless law may have a certificate paper that says such, 
it doesn't really matter at the end of it spiritually, eternally. God does not recognize that. What God sees is the open rebellion and the open rebellious practice of, of homosexuality. A bit of an excursion there again for that department of conversation, perhaps to be more so elaborated in another session. Lawlessness is to act where there is no law or authority. How do we know that unbelievers have the right to marriage? Well, they have the right to marriage because all people are given the right to marriage in Genesis chapter 2. You can't qualify for marriage. Again, and I mentioned this uh, previously, if you are a male, if you have yourself a male and a female who have not previously been divorced for, for any other reason except for the, the exception there, porneia, meaning you perhaps have a male, uh, a husband, and his wife was repeatedly uh, uh, fornicating, practicing adultery with another who was not hers, and she is not repentant, she is not going to change. Well, then you can lawfully, through God's revealed scripture, divorce that wife legally and be able to remarry. Now, she, will, she is condemned. She will stand condemned before God unless she repents. And her repentance means she will be single for the rest of her days on earth. Again, we need to take case per case and we need to be very compassionate and understanding with these things because they involve human emotion, investment, children, families, decades. So you need to have the love of Christ, but you don't compromise and you do not contaminate yourself with the very tempting appeal to just say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Everything's okay. God's grace is going to cover all of that. Well, no, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be repentance. They have the right to marriage because, of, because all the people are given the right to marriage in Genesis 2, and therefore all the people are under God's marriage law. Therefore, all men and women are commanded and expected to obey God's marriage law. Now, again, we must understand what that means. We are not commanded or we are not damned if we choose not to be married. The law is not applicable on that perspective, meaning, well, if I'm not married, then I'm not obeying the commandment of God regarding marriage, then, then I'm damned. No, not at all. Now, once you choose to qualify for the entrance to the institution of marriage, now you are under that institution and that law. But you, of your own voluntary free will, chose to do that. If I get into something, then I best know what I'm getting into. You want to become a soldier? Well, you best verse yourself on what that means, the sacrifice involved and all of it. Well, it's the same thing with marriage, and that's where we've dropped the ball a great many times, brethren. We've not been teaching about marriage to our youth, and if we took the time to teach them the value and honor of marriage and what it all means and how serious it is, maybe we'd have to spend less time rebuking divorce in the church. And we'd be spending more time cultivating, flourishing, loving marriages. Eh, what do you think? So in conclusion, the article says, the point I want, to, uh, I want us to realize is whether unbelievers are under the law of Christ or under the law of sin and death is really of no consequence in regards to the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In either case, unbelievers are under the same marriage laws as believers. Unbelievers are either under the law of Christ, in which it clear, it, it clear that they are to obey Christ's marriage laws, or unbelievers are under the law of sin and death, which we have shown also contains the same marriage laws. 
Therefore, unbelievers can commit adultery and violate God's marriage laws. When that is done, they are to repent of those sins along with their other sins when they come to Christ. An unbeliever is not allowed to remain in a sinful situation by keeping a spouse that is not lawful to have according to the law of God. Unbelievers cannot divorce and remarry as much as they choose and then come to Christ and keep their last latest spouse. There is no, well, we were young and we were stupid and we were filled with drugs and alcohol and we just didn't know what we were doing and God hates divorce. So, you know, he doesn't want us to now dissolve this current marriage that we are in in our 40s because of what we did very uh, foolishly in our in our early years when we were 19 and 20. No, listen, that's an emotional argument. I understand and I'm compassionate to it. I, I'm not high-handedly saying that... You, you, uh, anything that would be uh, purposeful to an offense, I'm just simply stating that's not an argument. It's an emotional p appeal. It's just, I feel that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be. Well, we may feel that it shouldn't be. The law is the law, and the law is just, and the law has grace. That's how we understand God's grace, through his law. Anyways, so yeah, it is what it is. And again, how, how would that function, right? I mean, I wasn't married as a believer. Do I need to be married again now? Or the first marriage didn't count? I mean, again, you're opening up a can of worms that the world wants you to because the world wants to contaminate, deviate, and pervert what God so wrote and created from the very beginning. So we need to go to the beginning. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. Let me finish reading here. An unbeliever is not allowed to remain in a sinful situation by keeping a spouse that is not lawful, to have according to the law of God. Unbelievers cannot divorce and remarry as much as they choose and then come to Christ and keep their latest spouse. Oh, we got wet, so now everything's fine. So all this adulterous relationship is no longer an adulterous relationship because we got wet. That don't work, man. That ain't gonna work. They have violated the marriage uh, uh, covenant and Jesus and Paul said that if one divorces and remarries other than for the cause of porneia, fornication, the explicit literal act of sexual intercourse, then they commit adultery. They are not to be married because it is not lawful for them to be joined. If a spouse divorces for any reason other than sexual immorality in the specific case of porneia, that spouse must remain unmarried or to be reconciled. And I maybe would give some pushback on reconciled. I have my reasons. I have my defense. But anyways, to the end of this article found over at westpalmbeachchurchofchrist.com. Again, you'll have to do your own homework if they are sound in a great many things. I don't know. But uh, the article, the, for the most part, was, was spot on, in my opinion. And scripturally so is the foundation and doctrine there. So hopefully that helps us understand a lot more what's taking place and what took place and what is taking place today and what's happening. And again, we can go back and forth about this, that, and the other. Ultimately, the scripture's teaching will be the words judging us on that day. When the highest court is in session and judgment is taking place, if you are found living in an adulterous relationship, you cannot enter the realm of the heavenly kingdom. It, it, will, it won't happen. It's not my law. I'm just the mailman. I'm not the judge. I'm not the one saying, because I said so. It, it's scriptures reveal the fact. 
scriptures reveal the fact. Anywho, I appreciate your kind attention throughout this session. Uh, by all means, if you have any comments or questions, you can certainly uh, put them down there. Um, at this time, I don't think there's anything more to add. We are past our hour in this session. I knew it was going to take an hour strong for sure because of the amount of information there that uh, we were going through. Uh, but anywho, uh, you are greatly appreciated, whether you agree or you disagree, you are loved, you have purpose in life. And, uh, we do pray you seek out the truth as we together all try to seek out the truth. I've had these discussions for 10 plus years now. I've looked in it myself. I keep looking into it. I keep learning. Uh, but I do know as a fact, there are pegs in the stone and the mountain that they, they, they're not going to be moved. They're just male, female, husband, wife. Okay, that's from the very beginning. You can't change that. You can't change that. And and the law therein of that institution, if you choose to qualify and enter that covenant, that agreement, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or you do not believe in God. It doesn't matter if you're an Islamist, a Hindu, Buddhist, an atheist, pagan, Gentile, G Greek. It doesn't matter which skin color you have, which language you speak, which geographical location or culture or religious background you have, it doesn't matter. This is a universal moral law set forth for all mankind, and it will be the judge for those who have violated that come judgment day. It just is what it is. Anywho, I'm done. Okay, before I keep going here. Stefan Maez, my name, addedsouls.com is the website. This is the Early Bird Podcast Sessions. If you find value and substance in the things we are sharing with you, please consider supporting. Come on over to addedsouls.locals.com. It is a freedom community that I have created, and you can certainly choose therein to support the ministry that goes for the gospel in the mission fields. And uh, we certainly desperately need your help. We need your prayers. We need your financial donations. This specifically to members of the Lord's Church out there, Christians faithful to the cause. No amount is too small. No amount is too big. We all know it costs money to buy Bibles, to pay the, the light bill, to you know this kind of stuff, right? And in the mission fields, we mission workers, we evangelists, we solely rely on God's good grace through your compassion to help us reach our financial goal each month, make sure the bills are paid and that the world here, this community is hearing the good news of Christ and the church is growing. Good stuff. Look at the itinerary. That's in the show notes throughout the week, Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time. Share, subscribe, follow, like, comment, all that kind of good stuff. Lord willing, tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time, we'll have ourselves another conversation for the itinerary discussion that day. All right. Stay focused, stay positive. Peace out.